So brothers and sisters, I invite you to stand with me as we continue now in Philippians. We are back in the book of Philippians and we'll be going through verses 8 through 11 this morning. And we hear now what Paul writes and God speaks for us. For God is my witness, Paul says, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. You may be seated. In one of the old Lone Ranger episodes, Lone Ranger and Tonto are riding out and they end up in a canyon surrounded by the canyon walls, but then surrounded by more than that, a a host of Native American warriors. And the Lone Ranger turns to Tonto and says, oh, what are we going to do now? Tonto looks back and says, who are you calling we Pale, pale face. <laughs> you got this one. So there had become a bit of a breach in the lack of unity between the two of them. And as we think of this lack of unity concept, which will be important to what we're looking at this morning, I think years back did the jail ministry in downtown Charlotte. Stuart Little here uh, did that with me also. I don't think he was here with me on this one uh, night that I think of. But what we would do is we would go in through a number of checkpoints through the jail, and you finally arrive in a large cement chamber, about a 10 by 15 room, and one of the guards would come and usher in a number of inmates, anywhere from 2 to 20. You didn't know uh, until that night. But then they would shut the door, and the door would lock from the outside. So you were in there for about an hour and 15 minutes until they came and and let you out. And normally, it was a great time of unity because you had guys who wanted to be there. They didn't have to come. They wanted to be there because so often they had a hunger and a thirst for the Lord Jesus. Their lives had been changed, and there was a unity around that. But one night... In the study, for some reason, uh, there became a bit of dissension um, and tension as a a bit of an argument came, and it it began to escalate a bit. And uh, tempers were starting to flare, and we had another 45 minutes before that door was going to be opened. So I was uh, quite concerned about the lack of unity, didn't know what to do, so just basically said, brothers, close your Bibles, we're going to pray had nothing else to rely on. And fortunately, things calmed, unity returned, um, and it was a blessing that the Lord answered that prayer. And so in many ways, that's what Paul is seeing here. He's seeing a, a wonderful church in Philippi in so many ways, but has its struggles, as any church does. And one of the struggles they had was around unity. And it leads Paul to prayer. One theologian says, Unity is not a luxury, but a necessity. The world will go limping until Christ's prayer that all may be one is answered. We must have unity 
not at all costs, but at all risks. So we'll say, we're going to see in the sermon that there are things that we should be unified around, but we should be willing to take risks for them. So Philippi is struggling, and it underlies Paul's prayer. And we see a hint at that. If you look earlier in the passages, we look verses 3 through 11. If you were to count the number of times that Paul says, you all, every one of you, all of you, it's just littered throughout that because he is appealing to them to be unified. If he was here in the, in the south talking to us, he wouldn't just say y'all. He would say all y'all, whatever that means. But we know we say that, but he's about that. You know, be unified. And then the question becomes, if you really want unity, what is the antidote for that? If we've got this sickness, sickness of division, what's the antidote for unity? Later in the book, we're going to see that he preaches um, humility and the beauty of humility over and over again. In this passage, this passage here, he has a different antidote. And we could ask the Beatles in their old song, what is it, Philippians, that you need? All you need is love. All together now. No. But fortunately, Paul has a better answer than just to say love, love, love 75 times over and over again like the Beatles did. So we're going to see four things that flesh out the love that he desires for them. Four things. Two weeks ago, Adam had four Ps uh, in his outline uh, for the, the passage. And so this morning, we have four Ps again. Um, and really a fifth P, because if I just used his outline, we'd have plagiarism. So we're going to avoid plagiarism. And it's four new Ps. Um, but you can look in, the, in your uh, sermon notes. And I invite you to, to follow along with the outline where we see that this love will prioritize, it will purify, it will produce, and it will praise. So stick, if you've got your Bible, stick with me in it as we're going to walk through this, this beautiful message uh, that we are given. And starting in verse 8, Paul starts with the, the ante, the buy-in, um, where he has capital with this people. He gives an oath, a promise to start off. He says, for God is my witness. Before God, I promise you this, that I yearn for you. And biblically, when, when he says he yearns for them, he's saying it is as deep as can be in my core that I long for you with everything. And not just what I have, but what Christ has. This affection for you people of Philippi, it's from Christ, and I promise you that. And he, he, is, he is building capital with them to see, to see, because he lived out that statement that says, if somebody says, well, people don't care how much you know until they, um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. He lived that out, and they could see that. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul says to his people, he says, I would be willing to be separated from Christ on your behalf. I would be willing to be damned on your behalf if you know Christ. And if Paul is, is, is loving them that way, they know he loves them. He is a pastor who cares for them deeply. 
And to that point, brothers and sisters, I, I just want to take a, a minute to say, we, we are in a good place as, as a church for Redeemer. And I say that simply because of this. For the last month, we have been blessed. Um, Adam and Deirdre, before they even came here, so many of you know, they, they, they were praying for you. I'm talking to Adam, Adam right and left, and I'll mention somebody, and he'll say, oh yeah, that's, he's married to her, and they have these children, and this dog, and this guy. No, he knows, he knows about you. They, they are studying you because they pray for you. They love you. Brothers and sisters, we are blessed with a pastor who yearns for you as this pastor, Paul, we're seeing the care and the compassion and the importance of that. Brothers and sisters, we are blessed in that way. Amen, please? Amen, yes. Verse nine, we're gonna see that Paul yearns for them and then we're gonna see the content of the prayer. Back in verse three, Paul had said, I pray for you. Now we get to see what's, what is it that he prays for them. And, and, and I don't know about you, but often you're, you're asked to pray for somebody and I, I want to pray for you, but I don't know what to pray. If you're ever lacking, pray scripture and this is a great scripture to pray for someone. So Paul prays for them and he prays for love for them. 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, love, the greatest of these is love Love is crucial, and he prays that for them. Now, if you look at verse 9, though, a question comes to mind. He says, and it is my prayer that your love, love for what? Love of what? Love of the outdoors, love of iced tea, love of a good car, love of a college football team, love of life itself. He didn't qualify it. Paul, love of what? What do you think he was talking about? Okay, a good safe answer would be love of God, right? Good, love of other people. We said in Philippi they were struggling with some things, that they were, had a lack of unity, maybe a little bit of fault finding. So when Paul doesn't qualify it, he's saying yes to both. Love of God vertically, love of, of, of our neighbor horizontally. They're both encompassed in this. And he says, brothers and sisters, I'm not just praying that you have a love. I know you already do. You're a good church. But I want that love to abound. I want it to spread. Many years ago, the old, the old Brady Bunch show, Bobby decides to do the wash. And he decides, I'm going to do the wash. And if I put detergent in the washing machine... Detergent makes clean clothes. Lots of detergent will make really clean clothes. And so he puts in some detergent, and then he puts in more and more and more, starts it up, goes over to do some homework. That washing machine starts to churn and flow and overflow, and the suds start to come out, and it's abounding, and the suds are abounding throughout the laundry room, and then they can't be contained. They abound and overflow out the door of the laundry room and seep out into the house. In the same way, the Lord is saying, and Paul is praying for his people, I want your love not to have bounds. I want it to grow. I want it to grow. And so, Redeemer, I challenge you, I challenge myself to pray that God would give you, give me a heart that overflows with love 
for the person with, you, with whom you have a disagreement. For the child to pray, Lord, as best I understand, help me to love my younger brother and sister who I'm mad at because they get all mommy and daddy's attention. Pray for that younger sibling. For the teenager to pray for that person in my class at school who are quite awkward rather than looking down at them. Pray for a love that abounds for them. For the adult, for the person here in church, pray for that person to love them that you think we have nothing in common. Our preferences are so different. Pray that God would give you a love for them and then, if you're willing to submit, watch and see what God does with your heart when you submit to him in love like that. And then get practical with it. The Lord changes your heart. Use your time, your talent, your treasure to help that person. If you're a handy person, then go help them fix up stuff. Teach them Teach them practical skills. You have something that you can give them. Love them in that way. If you're gifted with wisdom and with counseling, listen to that friend who has a need. Hear them and then listen some more and hear them some more before you speak and then speak words of wisdom. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word aptly spoken. You can bless someone in that way. If you're blessed with, with treasure in a sense, Bless missionaries. Bless others in need. Be a giver. It might cost us something. It costs Jesus a lot for you and for me. In Jesus, it says, a bruised reed he would not break. A smoldering wick he would not snuff out. He was loving with us so we can be loving with others. But Paul doesn't stop there. He's going to take this, this love that we said was just kind of billowing out so that it's not just this nebulous blot, but he's going to channel it in the right direction. So our first P is that it prioritizes. He says if you have this love, it will be prioritized in the sense that it will be a discriminating love. What do we mean there? He says that it will have knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment is, is, is what keeps us on the rails, from going off. In a sense, if we had a love that just tolerated everything, that would be harmful. And it's not really even possible. We all discriminate to some extent. I have a friend, an unbeliever, and that's where I continually try to take him, is to say, you say we should be so tolerant of everything, but you don't, love, you don't live like that. You pick and choose, and I do also what's guided is it's guided by knowledge and discernment towards certain things. And we're going to see what Paul says here. But Thomas Watson says about this knowledge that shapes our love, he says, knowledge is the eye that must direct the foot of obedience. So Paul gets practical with this love, this knowledge and discernment. In verse 10 he says, so that you will choose or approve what is excellent, what is excellent, in the sense of choosing something perfect, the best gold, the best diamond. Choose what is best, what is excellent, what is vital, what is vital. So many times we're taught nowadays to, 
I just got to learn to say no. I learn to say no to things. And to that, I would say no. (laughs) That's not necessarily the answer. I know what's behind that, but the point is this. We don't just say no to say no, but you say no because I'm saying yes to what is best. To yes to what is, as Paul says, excellent. To what is vital. To saying, no, I'm not going to take on these other 10 things because I'm going to invest in time with my family, with my wife, with my children. To this person who is desperately needy, I will invest in them. I will choose what is excellent, what is best. That is the time that we say no and say yes, as Paul wants us to do. But then he says also, as we continue, he says, why? Why? So that you may approve what is excellent and so. In other words, therefore, so you can be pure and blameless. The word pure in the Greek is basically a compound word. Two words. One are heliocrines. So the, the helio or helio, you can hear that sun. Crines is to judge. So sun and to judge. Uh, Plato, Greek philosopher, many, many years back said, what this word means is you bring something out into the light, into the sun, and you judge whether or not it is physically spotless. That's what we're looking here. Physically spotless is what Plato said. But Paul says, as we so often do, this is what the world is saying, but let's look at it in a redemptive way. Not just physically spotless, but spiritually what is being driven at here. He's saying that spiritually we should be sincere, transparent before the light of God as he examines us. Not saying we're going to be sinless, absolutely not. We're yet to be in that glorified state with God. But he is saying we should live sincere lives open before God. That is a pure life. The other word he uses is blameless, so that you can be pure and blameless. Blameless is a word picture also. What he means there is blameless has the the, the, uh, connotation of not tripping or not stumbling. So in one sense, when you trip someone, that's one of the cruelest things you can do. They don't even see it coming. Trip, boom, they're on their face. But you might also trip yourself. And you might even accidentally cause someone else to trip. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't cause others to stumble willingly or even accidentally. And that is indeed so humbling because we look at our own lives and I can see in my own life how many things I've said or done that have caused others to stumble. But Paul is saying, we, when we grow in love like this and we choose what is excellent, we can grow and to be pure, and to grow in being blameless. With something in mind, with something in mind, he says, for the day of Christ, so that we should be pure and blameless, not so we just look good, look good for the day of Christ. He doesn't want them to just make it there and squeeze by by the skin of their teeth. He wants them to be pleasing to God on that final day, All of history is pointing now to one day 
in the future. The day of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes, when he returns, when at that point we will be glorified. Until then, we are not fully sanctified. Paul says that himself. He says, I press on. I'm not there yet. I long and strain for it, looking forward to that day. And so, in a sense, we live our lives, the day of Christ, in mind. In a sense, as you're driving down the road and you look out the windshield and you see in the distance a beautiful sunset, orange, yellow, purple, whatever the colors be, that affects what you see in the distance in front of that. It shades the trees. It shades the hills in advance. It shades even the front of what you're driving through. In the same way, how we live today is shaded, affected, colored, viewed in light of the future. And we must keep that in mind that the eternal is even more real than what we think is. The eternal is more real than the temporal even. And, and one thing, uh, a few weeks ago in, 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 a, in a wedding, I charged the, the, the groom with this. I said, brother, you are, you are getting a godly woman b- beside you right now. She is already a godly woman. But Ephesians 5 is charging you that there is a day coming where she will be presented before the Lord Jesus Christ. And your ultimate goal is for her to be presented more godly to Jesus on that day than the day today that you are handed her. Live like that. Nourish her. Cherish her in that way because your marriage is colored by this day of Christ that Paul says is coming here in this passage. And then thirdly, Paul says, this love that prioritizes, that purifies It produces, it produces. He says the fruit of righteousness. He is not saying that there's a fruit that gives off righteousness. He's saying that there is, in a sense, the tree of righteousness that produces good fruit, that produces good fruit, that flows out of a righteous life. I tried to trick my youngest daughter the other day because we have our, our new garden. Dave Garrett and Tim Brown came over and I just said, guys, I have no clue what I'm doing with the garden. Just tell me what to do. They drew it out, said, put this here, 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 here. So we did that. I'm, I'm ready for that thing to start producing stuff. So I just put a piece of fruit out there, took Chloe out there, say, hey, look what we got here. She, di- she didn't fall for it. In the same way, you can't just take some dead tree and put a piece of fruit on it and make that tree alive. It's the other way around. The good tree produces good fruit. Jesus said that. So a righteous life made righteous. Christ imputed righteous to that person. Jesus living in and through them, abounding in love, discerning and pure, can't help but produce fruit of righteousness. Can't help. Is human effort involved? Is God involved? Yes. Human effort is involved, but all praise goes to God because it's Jesus doing it through us. Paul tells us that. That's the last point. He says this love 
that produces the fruit to the glory and praise of God. Paul closes there. Paul concludes his prayer in quite a customary way. Pretty common, pretty normative, pretty normal, usual for Paul. Even the first catechism question, what's the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Sounds a bit mundane, maybe when he does it over and over again. But this is by no means meant to be just mundane. We could say, brothers and sisters, that the point in effect of my life, of your life, whether we intend it or not, point of my life, your life, our church, our city, our country, the world, the universe itself is to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. That is why Paul finishes there. It's the ultimate purpose. And so if, if we were to picture, say, the, the most beautiful thing that you can think of, maybe, maybe it's a beautiful waterfall in the mountains. That, that waterfall is beautiful and glorious whether you see it or not. Whether you are standing in front of it or not, it is a beautiful and glorious waterfall because God made it so. Now, if you have an artistic talent that you can draw that, you can paint that in a beautiful way, and you show it to someone that will attract them to go and see that themselves. You aren't giving more glory to that waterfall, but you are helping to give others a picture so that they will appreciate and want to go and see that waterfall. In the same way, our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is great and glorious. We can't add a thing to his glory, but you and I are the ones who can point to it, to point to the glory of our Lord by the lives that we live. How can, Redeemer, how can our love this week point, point others to the great and glorious Savior? So in closing, simple takeaway. What will we think or feel or do differently that the love, or, or, or that we will pray this? Here is our calling. We pray that the Lord would allow us to abound in love. Paul gives it to us here. That we abound in love this week. How will you do that? How will I do that? After all, the world is watching. And they will know we are Christians by our love. Let us pray.